Now, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, and we shall read from verse 7 through 15. Esther chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Last week we considered verses 1 through 6, so tonight I want to consider with you verses 7 through 15 of Esther chapter 3. So we read verse 7. God's Word, Esther chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business." that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took off his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And thus far in God's word. Now let me remind you that we have already considered in the opening chapter, uh, verses of chapter 3 the event that brought Haman to formulate his plan. I mean, how did Haman... Uh, the Agagite come up with this plan? Well, the event, of course, was simply that Mordecai, the Jew, in the king's gate, refused to acknowledge Haman and refused to bow down to Haman. So, as Haman would pass by day after day after day, Mordecai just went about his business, refusing to acknowledge Haman, refusing to bow down, where every other official in the king's gate would acknowledge who Haman was because he had been promoted by King Ahasuerus, by King Xerxes. And the plan that Haman came up with, if you look at, is found in verse 6, and in verse 6 it says, He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, 
So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So the plan is quite simple. He's going to seek to destroy every single Jew that lives in the 127 provinces that belong to King Ahasuerus, stretching from India all the way to Ethiopia, a magnificent Persian empire. Every single Jew in that kingdom, uh, the plan of Haman is to destroy. Not because, per se, he uh, just wants to get rid of them, but he seeks one man only, the man Mordecai, for his failure to acknowledge. You'll notice the text says he disdained. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Because if he gets the people, then of course he gets Mordecai as well. What is his plan? His plan is total destruction. His plan is the total annihilation of a people. And I don't think we truly can understand how comprehensive such a plan uh, had to be to accomplish in every province among all the different peoples of the kingdom of Persia. Because it's not just Persians by origin, but all peoples who have come under the, the kingdom and the rule of Xerxes as he has overtaken other kingdoms and so on. And now these remaining verses that we have before us in verses 7 through 15 are then Haman's plan, put into practice, put into execution. So firstly, I want you to notice what it was, what was the plan, and secondly, how did he implement the plan? How did he bring about the plan? As I said, this plan is not easily implemented, it is not easily or hastily contri contrived, because look at how he... Uh, goes about uh, seeking to find out what he must do in verse 7. And verse 7 really is an introductory statement, is it? It says, In the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So notice, the activity of Haman is to seek when is the opportune time to implement his plan. He casts lots. He casts what is called pur or goral. He, he throws the dice. Whatever that practice was for him, he throws the dice seeking to discover when would be the best time to implement his plan. And it is a plan that he thinks about day after day, month after month, for a whole year. He's in preparation and he's in planning. And so it's interesting, isn't it, because what you discover in this here is that the writer suddenly switches from using Persian calendar names, like you discover in chapter 2, verse 16, in the month of Tibeth, this Persian month. Now you discover that the writer changes to Hebrew lunar calendar, and he uses the names that we find here. So notice he says it is the month of Nisan, and this is the first month. Now, it's important for us to understand these calendar months because the month of Nisan is the same as the first month, Abib, which is the pre-exilic characterization of the first month, whereas Nisan is the post-exilic characteristic uh, or characterization of the month. They're both the same month, uh, Abib and Nisan, but the one is before the exile and the other describes after the exile the first month on the calendar. And also the month Adar is here said to be the twelfth month. What is interesting about the month Nisan 
that is important for us is that the month Nisan in the Bible always communicates a sense of urgency, a sense of reaction, a sense of danger, that something is about to happen uh, in the description that we're given. And there are many things in the month of Nisan that take place as we discover when we read the Bible. So it communicates this sense of urgency. Haman wants to be about the business of implementing his plan. In fact, the month Nisan is Passover month. And that's a significance in and of itself. Because Passover reminds us when God delivered his people, Israel, out of bondage in Egypt. So you see what the writer is doing by, in the providence of God, that this is actually the month Nisan when Haman begins his preparation and his plan. That that is the very month that describes uh, when Passover is celebrated by the Jewish people. Passover signifying the great deliverance that God brings to His people out of Egypt and out of their bondage. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you discover that it was in the month of Nisan that Nehemiah describes himself as being cupbearer to the king and handing the cup, the wine cup, to King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, of course, son of this Xerxes, or son of of Ahasuerus. And so it's Passover month. It's a significant month. In fact, Nisan or Abib, as you discover further back in the Old Testament, was when the tabernacle was erected in Exodus chapter 40. And so verse 7 says, for 12 months they cast pur. Hebrew word is goral or goral. That's what they did. They threw, they threw the dice. They cast lots. So Haman is not doing this just by himself. He, he employs the astrologers, the magicians, the wise men of Persia, and they engage in casting these lots or these goral. Both historians, Herodotus and Xenophon, describe the Persian way of determining destiny or determining the future by the casting of lots. In fact, it is simply pagan divination doesn't matter where you go in the world and come across pagan religions, there's always going to be some subset to that religion about how they determine divination, how they divine things, the purpose of the gods, whatever they might be. The Persians were no different. They cast pur, they cast goral, they cast the dice. And this introduces us, you know, right at this point here, to the interesting subject of destiny. What is it that we believe about destiny? Every Christian who recognizes that they are Christians, have been converted, looks back upon their salvation or upon their conversion at whatever time in life that might have occurred, and they see that before their conversion, it would appear that there was the hand of God working. That God behind the scenes was orchestrating events, doing certain things. We call that, of course, the great doctrine of providence. That providence is all about destiny. When we talk about destiny, we think of two things. We think of the future and we think of choice. How do we go about determining the future? How do we go about determining choice? And so to cast lots was one way to determine choice and also to put a plan into effect for the future. The disciples, you remember, the 11 disciples in the upper room, they cast lots to determine the 12th apostle. One of these men must be with us, join with us, who's been with us since the very beginning, they said. And of course, when they cast lots, the lot fell to Matthias, and Matthias was included uh, as the twelfth member of the apostles. So, 
In the Old Testament, you discover that the casting of lots, of course, was a common practice to determine the will of God. Now, it's not that you just cast lots and then said, that's the will of God. What you did was you went to God and you talked to God about whatever it was you were thinking about deciding or needing help on, and then relying upon God to make the decision, you cast the lot or you cast the die. And from that decision, you determined that this was the will of God. Haman puts his trust in the die. He puts his trust in the lot. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 16 and verse 33 that the lot or the goral, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So Chris and I have been playing dominoes, right? And of course dominoes are made up of all these dots and and when we turn them face down, you can't see what they are. But when you turn them up, you can see the numbers. And I say, aha. Well, she says, aha. God has determined what you should get. There it is. And that is exactly what it is, right? He has determined every casting of every single lot, whenever it is done. The determination of all things, whether it is that which is holy and just and good, or whether it is that which is evil and unrighteous, is in the hands of God, ultimately. An interesting mystery when we talk about, about the will of God is that the decretive will of God forbids certain things. I mean, prom promotes certain things, whereas the preceptive will of God forbids certain things. So God, for instance, decrees that there should be sin. But God preceptively doesn't tell Adam to sin. Adam sins because there are sins against the precept, against the command. But the decree of God is that there should be sin. That is a mystery, dear brother and sister. I can't comprehend the sovereign purposes of God, neither can you. Neither does the Bible explain the sovereign purposes of God. How God can decree one thing on this hand and then permit it on this other side is beyond us. It's beyond comprehension. It rests in the divine sovereignty and the being of God. This is what you discover when you read the Old Testament and when you read the New Testament, especially when we find ourselves in this book. Because so much about the future of a people to be destroyed rests because God is not mentioned. So who will deliver? Who will save these people? How can you think in your mind what, what deliverance will come to them and where will that deliverance come from? Even Mordecai poses the question to Esther or poses the dilemma to question. If you don't get involved, then perhaps deliverance will arise from somewhere else. He has a hope of deliverance. But nowhere are we told that it will be God who would deliver it. Yet we all know when we read the text that God is in the, is in the book of Esther. There's no question about that. So here we discover then that destiny is determined by the casting of Lot. That is what Haman wants to determine. He wants to determine the future. He wants to make sure that he is in line with the gods that he worships whether it's a Zoroastrian type of religion, whatever it might be, he wants to determine that he is in the right when he makes the plan or implements the plan. So the writer is, this is a remarkable writer, the more I think about it. He introduces tension into the text to pick up your attention, to get you to stop, because he is asking the question by introducing these strange things that the Persians do, he is introducing them because he is asking the question, who controls destiny? Is it the gods of Haman, the Persian gods, 
the multiplicity of gods who have no power, have no life, or is it the one living true God? Who is it that controls destiny? In fact, you sit here tonight within the purposes of God, within the providence of God, under the destiny, the controlling destiny of God's hand. You sit here tonight. In fact, you breathe, live, exist, because God determines that you breathe, live, and exist right now. Every breath you take, every inhalation of air, is because God has determined that you should have another inhalation of air. And so you survive and you live in the hands of a sovereign controlling God. This doctrine of ultimate predestination or the sovereign predestination of God and the divine election of God, which is a tender mercy to us, is designed to show that, that you have no control over your salvation. You have no power over your destiny. It is God who controls the destinies of all men. And how He has determined that is beyond my comprehension. How He works and weaves your life and my life together so that here we are tonight, coming from a variety of backgrounds, from great distances to be here, that our lives are interwoven. It's the sovereign hand of God. So when we think like that, and you put it into the book of Esther, you discover that Haman's life is interwoven with Mordecai's life. A wicked individual with a righteous individual, it would appear, on the scene, finding themselves in the Persian kingdom under the rule of King Ahasuerus. That is God. It's not Haman who has come up with this plan. It's ultimately God who is working sovereignly behind the scene. Why is Haman casting lots? Because he is seeking to know the date. When is the best time for me to annihilate the people of Mordecai? And his casting of lots in the month of Nisan raises the question, will God rise again to deliver His people? Will God surface, come out from under the shadows, from the dark regions? Where, where is God? Will God come and show His face? To his people again. Will he deliver them? This is exactly what God did in Galatians 4.4. When the time was right, he sent forth his son. He revealed Jesus. He showed Jesus to the world. He brought his son into the world at the right time, the right second, the right parents, the right stable, everything. Jesus at the right time. God showing himself at that time. I've come to set my people free. I've come to deliver them. Can God do that 500 years before Jesus came? Can He raise Himself out of His silence, as it were, and show Himself a deliverer to His people? Now, on the lips of some people, it might be, can God deliver us? Is God able to deliver us? Surely, with our background of the Bible, we would say emphatically, yes, God can deliver. God is totally able to deliver because He is who He is and He is sovereign. And has God delivered His people? Look at the Old Testament history. Time and time again, He delivers them, doesn't He? He raises up judges. He saves His people. They go into sin. They reject Him. He then, they cry to Him, and then He raises up another judge, and He delivers, He delivers, He delivers, He delivers. All the time, God showing Himself to His people, revealing Himself to His people. Every time I read my Bible, every time I open the pages of Scripture, it is God showing Himself to me. It is God revealing Himself to me, to you. 
communing with you, having fellowship with you, showing Himself to you. You go through dark valleys, you go through dark times, and yet when you pick up your Bible, you sense that this is my God. This is the God I believe in. This is the God who saves me. This is the God who has done great things for me. I can trust Him. Can He deliver me? Yes. Will He deliver me? Yes, in His good time, if He so chooses. And that's the question that this writer is raising here in the book of Exodus. So verse 7 is the preparation by Haman, by this man Haman, to destroy a, people's, a people throughout the kingdom. That's not an easy task, is it? He's come up with this plan. But how is he going to implement it? Because there's only one way you can implement a plan on that scale. You have to have the support of the king. You have to have the king, Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, behind your plan, behind you, supporting you. So look what he does, for instance, in verse 8 and verse 9. He presents his proposal. He brings his plan to King Xerxes. And I want you to notice a number of strategies that he uses here. First of all, his first strategy is he does not specifically name the Jews. He doesn't bring out the name Jews. You look at verse 8, he says, there is a certain people. There is a certain people, he says, scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. So you notice his, his personal animosity towards one man, which is who is a member of this vast group of people, these Jews. He doesn't say it's the Jews that I'm talking about. What is Haman doing? Haman is couching his plans in what we call today political theory. He's using political theory. So what Haman is saying is goes like this, something like this. King Xerxes, we have a problem. We have a problem in our kingdom. There are people, a bunch of people, in your kingdom, your kingdom, Ahasuerus, who are spread throughout your kingdom in every province, 127 of them. So all those places you conquered, O king, from Ethiopia to India, these people are in your kingdom. And they, those people, that certain people group, they have absolutely no regard for your laws, O king. Surely we cannot tolerate those people. That's how he says it, I think, to Ahasuerus. And then he would add right at the very end of that, whatever that statement was that he said, but I can see to it, I can fix the problem. I can deal with the problem. I have a solution. So Haman uses deception, doesn't he? He doesn't state who the enemy is. He says there is an enemy, it's a certain people, and they're everywhere. And they don't regard your laws. They have no concern for your laws. So he is inventing charges that are completely false. Common political practice, right? Throughout the world. From time immemorial. That's strategy number one. Strategy number two. He says, look, these people, they have their own laws. They have their own rules. Their own regulations. In fact, O king, there is not a single people group in all your kingdom like them. Because all these other people that we rule over, they observe your laws. They follow your laws. But these people, they have their own laws. And they observe their own laws. There's no other people like them. So you see, he's painting the picture to Xerxes of a people that shouldn't be there. That need to be destroyed, need to be removed. That's strategy number two. They have their own laws. Strategy number three, 
He says, you know, these people, they're everywhere. I go down the street, doesn't matter which province, which part of the kingdom, I'll find them. They're everywhere. They have shops, they have businesses, they're married, they have families. They're everywhere, O king, in your kingdom. In, notice the text, in all the provinces. 127 provinces. These people exist in your kingdom, Xerxes. There they are. So strategy number four, he suddenly then introduces this theme. You know, Xerxes, or maybe he said, O king, there is no advantage to having those people in your kingdom. Because they don't, they don't listen to you. They're not interested in your laws. They don't follow you. Every single one of them. They have their own religion. They do their own thing. No, they are of no advantage to you, King Xerxes. So in verse 9, he presents his, his plan, right? And his plan, frankly, is similar to Mr. Hitler's plan, a final solution. Verse 9, if it is, pleases the king, let, the decree be, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. How, how simple it is to destroy people's lives. Just a determination by one man. Just a decree. And everybody will be destroyed. Everybody will be wiped out. And what does Haman suggest? He makes two more statements, right? Uh, he says, let this be your pleasure, O king. And then number two, let this people be destroyed. The word destroyed is the word for perish, annihilation, obliteration. And then he makes a third statement in verse 9, to cover any possible objections. Because you know, maybe Xerxes is thinking, well, I never heard of this. I never come across these people. I know my kingdom. I've never come across these people. What, is, what are you talking about, Haman? To, to assuage the king, to, to pacify the king. In case he has certain objections, he says this, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it, he says. That is political power, and that is political manipulation here in the Bible on a scale that is probably unimaginable in all the world. Persia rules the world. It is the world. And here's one man suggesting, I can orchestrate a devastating plan that will destroy a single people group on one day. On one single day, it can be done. And they'll never trouble you again, Ahaz Uerus. That's political power, right? At its most brilliant, at its finest. Corruption and bribery, they bring kingdoms down. In every kingdom in the world, in every country in the world is always at the heights of power, corruption and bribery, isn't there? To achieve ends. It's political ends. In other words, to have support, you must buy support. It's common practice. Notice King, I mean, notice Haman's language. Look at the end of verse 8. He says, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. That's a brilliant word to use, profit. Because the one thing Xerxes really needs is money, profit. And Haman knows that, right? Profit is the word for interest. It's not in your interest. It's a word for consideration. It's not for your... You shouldn't even be troubled by this. I'll take care of it for you, King Xerxes. And the word tolerate means to let, let remain or to let them be at rest. No, we don't want that. We want to remove them. We don't want them to remain. We want them gone is what Haman is saying. 
And Purim, which we discover later on in the book of Esther, which is the great delivering celebration, right? Means precisely the opposite of obliteration or this word toleration. It means to bring rest to the Jews, chapter 9. And to bring relief, chapter 9, verse 22. That's what Purim is going to do, the great celebration at the end of the book. So Haman's plan is obliteration. But Esther, as we shall discover, will have a plan as well. Mordecai will have a plan. Their plan is deliverance. Here are two great things, right? So Israel is in bondage in Egypt, and God calls Moses sitting on the backside of a desert in Midian. He's 80 years of age. He's an old man. He's a shepherd. He's long forgotten in Egypt. And God appears in a burning bush and says, Moses, Moses. And he has turned aside already to see the bush that's burning with unquenchable fire, not being consumed. And he, Moses, Moses, here am I. And then God introduces himself to Moses that I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your fathers. And my people are there in Egypt in bondage under harsh taskmasters. I want you to go, Moses, and I want you to deliver my people. I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, set them free. And of course, that, that was a massive plan, right? Moses first has to accept, and of course, he had many objections, right? I'm not, I'm not able to speak, which was not the truth, because he used to be the general of Pharaoh's Egyptian armies. He is the man, Moses, who apparently routed a million Ethiopians in the field. He's a general. This is Moses. Moses is eloquent. Moses is fully able to communicate. I send someone else, please. Have another plan. But no. Moses is God's plan. Moses is the man. And when God has a plan, God doesn't change the plan. God accommodates perhaps our human weaknesses and fallibilities, but He uses us and He brings us into His plan. That's what He did with Moses. For what purpose? To deliver his people. And so he will raise up because you begin to sense it when you read into chapter 4 that Mordecai and Esther are going to be able to come up with some plan to deliver this people, these Jews, from the hand of this man called Haman. And so the writer is hinting at all of these ideas of obliteration and salvation, of annihilation and deliverance, all in one breath it would seem. Destruction is about judgment, but deliverance is about salvation. Haman is seductive. Haman is persuasive. That's how he talks. If it please the king, verse 9. If it please you, here's the plan, right? And, he, and that, of course, if it please the king, and all that he said guarantees the attention of King Xerxes. Because Xerxes is interested in only one thing in his life. Vashti did not please him. She was removed. He is not interested in obstacles to achieving his end. His end is his ambition, his goal. It was to destroy the Greeks because they waged war against Darius, his father, and he lost to them like Darius, his father, lost to them. He depleted the treasuries in Persia. He has no more money. And so Haman's promise, I will pay. Ha, his ears go like that. Right? That's what I want. I need money in the coffer. Yes, if it suits the king's pleasure, Haman says, it does suit my pleasure. Because all he can think about 
is filling the coffers of Persia once again. And notice verse 9, what's tucked between two phrases. The first phrase, if it please the king. The second phrase, I will pay. In between those is this little phrase, which Haman so cleverly inserts right at the stage. He says, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And in case he objected to that, and I will pay. And I'll pay for it. To seal the deal, Haman promises a massive contribution. I mean, look what it says. 10,000 talents of silver. That's what he says. I will pay that into the king's treasuries, into the, for the king's business. Uh, uh, that's, that's what I'm willing to pay. And the one thing that Xerxes needs is, of course, silver, money. His treasuries are empty, and so on. Now let me tell you something about 10,000 talents of silver. That's more than 300 tons. It's massive. It's incomprehensible. You can't think of more than, more than I suppose, five talents. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? They're the weight of the talents. It's all about weight. It's more than 300 tons. Herodotus says that the entire annual Persian income was about 14,500 talents. The entire year's annual income, 14,000 talents. Here comes Haman. Look, I'll pay 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. So you ask yourself, well, how on earth can Haman come up with 10,000 talents of silver? How is he going to have the money, that kind of money? Well, I'll tell you how he's going to have it. He's going to seize Jewish property. He's going to plunder the Jews. That's his plan, right? The end of verse 13. Uh, it says at the end of verse 13, and to plunder their goods. That's how he's going to come up with the, the money to pay to finance this operation. He's going to seize Jewish property. He's going to plunder the Jews. And I think 10,000 talents is probably an exaggerated amount to King Ahasuerus. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. I mean, Ahasuerus doesn't say, now look, Haman, I'm the richest guy in Persia. Where did you come up with 10,000 talents? He doesn't say that. He just hears 10,000 talents. Good deal. I'm getting money, and so on. And so it persuades the king, or it manipulates the king. Now Ahasuerus, he listens to advice, doesn't he? He listens to advice that advances his own purpose, his own ends, that benefits him and pleases him. This is Persian practice, by the way. Back in chapter 1, you remember Memucan, who was one of the royal advisors, one of those seven noble princes. He suggested, look, Vashti should be removed, and uh, we don't want other women in the kingdom looking down on their husbands, so if it pleases the king, let's put another plan into operation. Because perhaps he hoped that his own family might be elevated to the queen position. What about the king's young men in chapter 2? They suggested a plan to choose a new queen. This is how we do it. Let gather all the young virgins and bring them here. And let's determine which one is going to be the next queen. And Haman now does exactly the same thing, right? He suggests. He gives advice. And these advisors, all of them, and their advice and their strategies are all so that they themselves will be the beneficiaries of royal power. It's an ingratiating way in the corridors of royalty and power. And so, notice verse 10, Xerxes gives the royal power to Haman. He's simply there and then, sitting on his throne, takes his signet ring, he takes it off, and he gives it to Haman. Just like that. 
All power resides in that ring. That's the royal seal of approval. That's the ring that stamps every document. That's the ring that decrees every edict that is ever made in Persia. That ring. He takes it off and he gives it to Haman. So that all power now is in the hands of Haman. In one sense you might say, Ahasuerus, what are you doing? He has given the power away to Haman in verse 10. And so Haman, who is now referred to, notice how verse 10 suddenly introduces Haman, the enemy of the Jews. The first time. Now you know that Haman is described by the writer to the book of Esther as the enemy of the Jews. And we, of course, knowing who the Jews are, know that the Jews are the people of God. These are Israelites. These are exiles scattered throughout the Persian Empire. They are God's people who went into exile because God judged them. But God also promised them to return. And not too many years in the future from the book of Esther, you come across the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. So you discover that in 458, Ezra went back. And in 445, Nehemiah went back. And they took, they took people from Persia and they went back uh, to the promised land. But there are people that live all scattered throughout Persia, like Mordecai and like, like Esther. So the signet ring, the ring on Xerxes' hand, that is the symbol of political power. And now Haman has all the power and all the control because that ring is the notarizing authority for the decree that he wants to make and he wants to send out. So notice verse 12 provides the decree, right? On the 13th day of Nisan, all the king's scribes are summoned together in the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, is written to the king's satraps and governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. You've got you to you write a lot of decrees, right? Because there are all kinds of people out there, and they've each got their own language, and they've each got their own alphabet, and their own way of writing, and so you have to have scribes that can write in all those people's languages. This edict, this decree, that Haman de determines... And they write this decree, and it's written to every people group, to the king's satraps, to the governors, to those in authority over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own language. And Haman, you notice the end of verse 12, he uses the king's name. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So, verse 14 says, A decree in every province. A decree was issued in Susa. So a copy of the document is issued in every province, all 127. And not only that, but it's by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready on that day to destroy the Jewish people. Now this decree contains specific instructions. Will you look at it? Verse 13. There is instruction to destroy Instruction to kill. Instruction to annihilate. All the Jews. And notice how all the Jews are described. Young, old, women, children. Do you know that this is what we call the stacking of verbs? Right? Destroying, killing, annihilation. Stacking verb on top of verb on top of verbs. It's just a stylistic feature, by the way, of Persian legal writing and documents. To get the point across. Since I'm a preacher, I understand about how to... Try and get points across. You say things different ways, don't you? You, you? you use words because words are all the preacher has. 
Yes, he may have gestures and he may have things like that, but words are the medium of communication. And words have power, and words are descriptive, and words can, can affect the emotions of people and change their thinking and so on. So when to kill, to destroy, to annihilate is written, it's with this purpose to seal on the hearts and the minds of everybody in the kingdom that this is serious stuff. This is what you have to do. And to plunder their goods. Not only that, but do it all on one day, the 13th day of Adar in the 12th month. Which, of course, is 11, month, 11 months down the road from the first month. So they have a whole year to think about it. A whole year to come up with what are we going to do on this one day that Haman has determined we must use to destroy God's people. And notice that the accomplishing of this is not in the hands of the Persian army. Oh no. But in verse 14, that all the peoples must implement this. All the common people must be ready to do this. I mean, this is genocide on an unimaginable scale, isn't it? You get your own people to kill a certain people group. This is murder, the seizing of properties, a systematic elimination of a people. I mean, if I look at that, that's Haman's plan eclipses Hitler's plan. Totally. This plan. Use the people. I mean, Hitler was evil. There's no question about it. Haman was more evil. If we can even begin to make a distinction between evil. But they're evil. And look then at what Haman and Ahasuerus do in verse 15. So the couriers go out by order of the king. The decree is issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. And the city of Susa is thrown into confusion. Sitting down to drink. That's how they discuss business in Persia. Lots of drinking. Remember chapter 1? A lot of stuff gets talked about. All the generals, remember in chapter 1? And so you have this attitude by Haman and Ahasuerus on the one hand, but the city of Susa is in total confusion when they read the decree, when they read the edict. Well, why are they in confusion? Because even in the city of Susa, Persians and Jews dwell, live together side by side. Perhaps there's even marriage, intermarriage between Persians and Jews. We certainly know that existed from the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And so perhaps there are families that are involved in this. There's half of the family is Persian and half of the family is Jewish. And now you get this decree from the king himself that the Jews, all of them, be destroyed. Young, old, women, children, every single person. They're confused. But don't forget that it was Cyrus the Great, the Persian, who destroyed the kingdom of Babylon, who permitted the Jews to return in the first place to rebuild their temple. And so the Persians have, have had this policy of toleration of, over the peoples they destroy, over the peoples that they, they control. They seek to bring them in and to assimilate them. They live together, do business together, even marry together. Such a decree is going to cause absolute havoc, isn't it, in the minds of a populace, the people of Susa. Not only Susa, but think of the entire kingdom thrown into confusion by such an order. All right, so that's the story. What can I say about these things? And what can you say? I think I've tried in some feeble way to, to put you into the text, to put you into it so you feel it, you can sense it, right? 
But that's not all that the text of the Bible seeks to convey, just so that you feel that. There are deeper truths, right, that lie under the surface. I mean, we are trying, and I think what I've tried to do is to get you to feel history, to sense history, to, to realize that history is a serious thing. Or to put it another way, history is, as some have said, His story, God's story. That's what history is. So history, to me, is not some dry old dusty relic of an event that happened centuries ago and doesn't really affect us. No, all of history affects us because history is living and history is real and history which exists in the past always affects the present. In fact, I can guarantee that your history, personal history, affects you right at this moment. That all of your past is in your present. It's there. You know it. It's who you are. So history is a living thing. Now listen, if God is in the present, and I know you believe that, because I believe that. There's no question about it. If God is in the present, then you should know this. God was in the past. And if God was in the past, and God did certain things in the past, will He do them again in the present, today, for me, or whenever it's necessary? So Esther chapter 3, all the verses, 1 through 15, raises the question, in the light of Haman's proposal to bring about a destruction of an entire people, the question is this, who can deliver them? Another question is, who will deliver them? Or another question is, can anyone deliver them from such a planned purpose, from such a planned assault upon them? The answer, of course, is yes, right? They can be delivered. But deliverance will not come by a man. It will not come by Mordecai. And it will not come by Esther. They are instruments and tools in the hand of a sovereign God. God is the only redeemer of His people. God is the only redeemer of His people. God is the only Savior of His people. And He saves them always. And He delivers them always. He delivered Egypt, uh, Israel out of bondage in Egypt by His mighty hand on Passover night. On Passover night. God was in covenant with them. He had ob obligated Himself to be their God, to save them. Haman sets in plan his plan on the 13th of the month of Nisan which is Passover night. Will God rise again to set His people free? Will He do exactly what He did in bondage in Egypt on that 13th night of the first month, that Passover night, when all of Israel's mind is upon a sacrifice made for them, blood shed for them to be delivered out of Egypt? You see, what the writer wants to do is to raise your hopes, to raise my hopes that God is in the mix somewhere. That it's God who can deliver me from all my troubles. That God can deliver me from all my sorrows. Because interestingly enough, God has always delivered His people. And the one person He never delivered was His Son. He delivers us, but He never delivered His Son. He handed, delivered over His Son to His enemies. And God never delivered Him. He abandoned Him 
to the whims of men and their sin so that you and me might be delivered. Can God deliver me? That's how God delivered me. That's how God delivered you. He delivered up His only Son, gave Him in His plan and in His purpose into the hands of wicked men who took Him and slew Him. And that was the plan of God. Isn't the plan of God glorious? You can't comprehend it. God working, always, always working. I mean, think of how long the plan of God, well, this is the wrong way to think about it, right? Because God never comes to think about His plan. His plan is always in His mind. He simply decrees what He knows. And so He determines that Jesus will come. He determines that a people will be sinful and they will need redemption. He determines that Adam will sin and Adam will fall. And yet God's hands are pure and clean, absolutely holy. He has decreed the end from the beginning and everything in between, as Isaiah reminds us. And that includes Jesus, includes Christ dying for us. If you assault the covenant people of God, if you seek to assault them and destroy them, you seek to assault God because God is bound to His people. And He delivers them and He saves them. Now, you know, Satan uses worldly power. That's Haman. Right? He's just, a, he's just a pawn. Satan will use individuals like that, earthly power. But God uses only holy, sovereign power. Perfect power. The world has no regard or very little regard for God or for His people. Right? Because the world is predatory. The world seeks to devour. Do you remember how the dragon in Revelation chapter 12 stood before the woman who was about to give birth to the male child so that when that child was born he could devour it? But he couldn't. He was unable to devour and destroy the male child, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Herod the Great had his plan. Kill all the boys under two years of age. But that didn't destroy the Son of God. No, he had already fled to Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Hosea chapter 11. You see, it's God. His plan. His purpose. And so, to be salt and light, which is required of you and me, according to Matthew chapter 5 by Jesus, is to be viewed and to recognize that I will be viewed by the world out there as different, as unnatural, as not normal. That salt and light affects people, shows up their, their darkness, shows up their sinfulness by our holy lives, by the lives that we live. You see, the world views us as enemies. We are not on their side, and if that's true, in one sense, we are, of course, not on the world's side, but we live in this world. I want you to know tonight that you live in this world, and whatever your occupation is, whatever work you do every single day, it is in the hands of God in this world. And it is to be done for the glory, the sole glory of God. And when you commit yourself to that, you shall discover that God enters into your work and no longer does it become a drudgery. No longer does it become an effort. It becomes a glorious joy because you're doing it for God. That's how we must see life. That's how we must live life because it's in the hands of God totally. You know, God may call upon you and God may rely upon you at a certain point in time in your life. You need to prepare yourself. I need to prepare myself for whenever that may be. Listen, heaven is not the default destination that the world thinks it is. It is the destination of the righteous. And hell is the destination of the unrighteous, the wicked. 
is a serious business when we think like that. In our constitution even, we say, we the people. Do you know what we the people means? It means, here's the signatory. With that power, you determine what you want. We, the people. In God's Bible, it is never we, the people. It is only and always God. And God alone. Always and only. Do not confuse this world, this kingdom, these cities, our country, as if that is Christian in one sense. Oh no, dear brother and sister. We, the people, no. It's never we who determine anything. It is God who determines liberty, and it's God who determines prosperity, and it's God who determines your happiness. And not you. It's God who does that. He may call you to suffer great things for His namesake, like He did the Apostle Paul. Are you willing? Are you willing for Jesus' sake? Because Jesus endured all things that you and I would never even go near. Right? We have to always be careful to whom we give power to, right? We must be wise in every decision that we make about who rules over us and so on. Power in the world is obtained by wealth, by money. You buy power. That's what Haman did. He bought power and he abused power. And political power is a seductive force, isn't it? Don't confuse Christianity. Don't confuse your life as a Christian. Don't confuse the church with all the governing authorities of the world. It's not that we are anti-government in any form of the way. Because government is ordained of God. Government has its place. It is the sword of God. And God uses it for His own purpose and His own glory. Your responsibility as a Christian is to live for God and what He has determined and decreed. No matter where you live in 127 provinces in Persia, for example. So let us understand that it is actually Jesus then who rules the nations. It is Jesus who holds them like all the sand in a bucket. All those nations, they are in His hand. He rules them with a rod of iron. He rules them. He is the King. He's my King. He's your King. He's my Sovereign. He's your Sovereign. You see, my life as a Christian, it's in the world, but it's otherworldly. It's not of this world, right? The Christian's life is not of this world. Salt and light is different. That's what God has called us to be, right? Silver and gold will never save us. So the doctrine of the decree of the providence of God teaches me that trouble can only come to my life if God sends it. Trouble can only come to my life if God sends it. And by the way, God sends trouble to the life of His saints to refine them. You may have illness, you may have disabilities, you may have sickness. God gave it. God gave it. What will you do with it? What will you do with your frailty? What will you do with your weakness? What will you do with your, your disabilities? I'll tell you what you must do. You give them to God. And you thank Him. And you praise Him. That you have made me like this. Because when I am weak, Paul says, then am I strong. Only when I realize my weakness. This is it. God sends trouble to His people to refine them, to purify them. He sends trouble to the wicked to condemn them, 
to judge them. And one day Jesus shall come, shall he not, from glory, from, with great power, and he will judge the wicked with righteous judgment. And he will welcome his people who have suffered so much because he saved them. He delivered them from the wrath to come. Right? You see, if we truly grasp the providential care of God in our life, then frankly all the solutions would be provided to all of our theological and biblical questions. And you know what those theological and biblical questions always come down to? Why God? Why God? Why did you do this, God? Why God? Why God? Instead of, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you've done. I don't understand it. It's a darkness to me. It's a mystery to me like it was to Job. But thank you, God, so that I might live a life that pleases Jesus, who lived that same kind of life. Providence requires submission, not questions. Providence requires trust, de dependence, requires faith. And it's, by the way, let me tell you this, providence is the very thing that supports predestination. Because predestination is all about purpose. And the way God ordains, works His purposes through providence. What He has decreed from the beginning to the end, He superintends all the in-between with His providential care upon your life. So that you are woven and I am woven in the lives of each other in this world by Him, by God Himself. One thing I know about Haman is that all of his plans and purposes are in God's hands. That's what we need to understand. Providence demands worship. Providence demands adoration. Demands praise. And our God is able always to deliver us, His people. What I must do, what you must do, is trust Him and thank Him. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank You for these glorious truths of your word pray that you would just help us to understand that you control our lives in every intimate detail from our mother's womb to the grave and beyond our entire lives are in your hands you have given us life to be lived for your glory now we pray th thank you that you have saved us by, by your grace now enable us by your grace to live according to to your word by faith, to trust you in every situation. Help us tomorrow in our daily work. Thank you for it. Thank you for the privilege, for the responsibility of labor. May we glorify you. May we please you in it. May we elevate you in our thinking about all the little jobs that we must do, even when we don't feel like doing them, to remind ourselves that we do them for your glory because you've determined the end from the beginning for us. To cast ourselves upon you when we're in trouble to throw ourselves upon you because you have delivered your people time and time again and you will deliver us. And should we go through the fires unto death itself, you still will deliver us from death because you have done so in the death of Jesus. So thank you for your word and thank you for our time. Now we pray, send us out into the world. We go from this place on this Lord's Day to serve you, to please you. Use us for your glory, we pray. We commit ourselves to you and all things to you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.